And as we do tonight, this is great, this is exciting. So please welcome our guest this evening, uh, all the way from Israel, David Tao. Come on up, David. This is funny. Oh, and Bob Probert's joining us too. Come, Come on, on up, Bob. Bob. You saw Bob a few minutes ago singing some songs. I don't know why you have such a short chair. That is funny. Let me fix yeah, yeah, this. I'll take okay. the short chair. Come on, you guys. You want the short chair? Yeah. I think that. Okay. It's all about the height, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> have a seat. Yeah. Hello, y'all. Or shalom. I hope the chair shalom doesn't fall Israel, over. Yeah, I got the chair. That yeah. would be that would be a. Got bummer. the chair lined up. This, this is going to be a great night. Uh, we're going to talk about a whole lot of things tonight. Obviously, Israel. You are here from Israel. Uh, That's you, what I'm here for. You just uh, flew in, and um, been here for a couple days, Southern California. Yep. It's exciting for us to have you back with us. Well, thank you very much. It's exciting to be here. How many people have been on the tour? All right. How many people are planning to be on the tour? Okay, we're going to talk about a couple more things along the way, but yeah. it's exciting to be here. Yes, we are. Uh, so uh, with that, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. We pray for your blessings on the night, our time with David. We thank you for bringing him here uh, safely. We ask that it be fruitful, not just tonight, but his entire trip out here. We know it's busy. Grant him your peace and sustain him physically, too, and... Uh, do great and mighty things through him that he does not yet know. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, David, let's get going. I want everybody to kind of get to know you first. For those who don't know you, have met you before. Um, you're, you were in the IDF. Israel, you a, Israel Defense Force. Israel Defense Force, which is uh, defending as opposed to attacking. It's not the Israel Attack Force. Um, but we've, with that, are we've you... stepped out a couple of times, but we can go <laughs> if well, you want to go we'll there. We'll get into these things. So, so people can get to know you a little bit. Let's go back a few years. And um, you're young. You're, you've got your... Uh, younger. Younger. You're younger. You're still young. You're younger. And you're, you're, on the, you're out there fighting. And you have your first fight. It's coming up. You've got some challenges. You're... Were you tank commander at that time? Well, yeah. Um, I tried for Air Force. They threw me out. I wasn't good enough. Ended up in the tanks. And I don't know if you know, but in Israel, everybody goes into, well, I'm going to say the Army. From now on, I'm going to call it the Army. The word would probably be military because we have a Navy. We have, you know, all kinds of different. But the word in Hebrew for military is the same as the word for Army. So we all go into the Army at the age of 18. Guys go in for three years. Girls go in for two years. By the way, Israel is the only nation in the world that drafts women. We actually bring them in. It is. And so like everybody else, I went in, got kicked out of the Air Force, ended up in a tank, uh, a tank commander. And 1981, the area in southern Lebanon uh, was being used by what was then called the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, what today is called the Palestinian government, by the way, was being used as a base to attack Israel from because the southern Lebanese were not very powerful. And Israel goes in in 1981 and decides to clear out the Palestinians from southern Lebanon so it would not be used as a base. Um, like I said, 19 years old, and I still remember crossing over the border for the first time and, and actually being excited. 
I mean, think about this. Um, all my life has been leading up to that point. And I, I'm crossing into to battle. And there was this feeling of, this is my time. My dad fought in wars before me. We've heard the stories about the other people who fought in other wars. This was my time. Uh, we have a saying in Hebrew, it was a feeling like I was the tip of the spear. And we were going in. Lebanon, by the way, is very hilly, very mountainous. And without going into all of the tactics, in a mountainous uh, situation, you don't have all of the forces lined up in lines fighting in the front. We're kind of winding through the mountains. Some of the forces in the front are fighting. So I'm in the back for about three days and only find myself actually facing the enemy about the third day in. Um, we were fighting Syrian armor. I'm a tank commander. And we were actually fighting Syrian tanks that were actually arrayed in, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Baqa Valley in, in southern Lebanon. And I still remember thinking it was, it was a turkey shoot. I mean, we were up on the top of the ridge because they had made a couple of very serious tactical mistakes. They were down below and we were shooting. Um, my first target was a Syrian T-62, Soviet-made T-62. Um, I still remember the feeling getting ready to fire on the target that the crew was working very well. A tank is a complex machine. There's four people inside the tank. There's a gunner, there's a loader, there's a driver, and there's me, the commander. And um, we were all working very well. You know, the, the round goes into the, to the, to the bore, and, and, and then the gunner's supposed to s select the range, and, you know, I'm giving orders, and every, everything's working very well. And I remember being excited, and, you know, and, and you hear that thump inside, and you see the tracer go out, and we fired off the first round. Uh, missed the target, which is fine. We can still do that. And I think it was 2,430 meters. That's the range, and I'd say a little bit more than a mile. And we missed, and we made the correction, and we fired off the second round. Second round impacts the side of the target, and the target explodes. And by the way, just like in the movies, literally you go into slow motion, frame by frame by frame. I still remember, I, I have the movie. I can, I can kind of trace the movie. And my first reaction when I see this was to jump up and down. I'm sitting on this, standing on this little pedestal saying, yeah, yeah, you know, we did it. I mean, all of this, all of my life, all of my training, all of the sweat, all of the fear, all of the artillery that's been falling on our head, all of the crummy food had come to that point and we had done a good job. We really had done a good job. We'd taken out an enemy tank. But um, I was trained to fire a second round into a target after you hit it. So I give the order to fire the second round. And the gunner, a guy's name was Yossi, you know, um, was supposed to repeat the, the orders that I gave and didn't say anything. And I say, Yossi, fire a second round. And he doesn't say anything. And it took me a while to realize that Yossi wasn't with us. And I listened to him a little bit. You know, we're all inside this comm system, and I, and I realized that Yossi's crying. He says, David, we don't need to. They're all dead. They're all dead. Now, for me, it's been a target until now. For Yossi, it was something else. And he, he had, he, he was a little bit more up close. He's, he's the one who actually puts the scope on the target and pulls the trigger. So he sees what's happening. 
And, and again, we're all tank commanders. We know what's happening. So I got freaked out. I mean, I've got a gunner who's freaking out in a, in a combat situation. Okay, okay, let's do something. Yossi's already crying. So I go down inside, and I decide to do what my dad used to do to me when I go hysterical. Slap him up the side of the head. Okay. Forgot he had a helmet on. Oh, ouch. Okay, pull the helmet off. Slap him up the side of the head again. Um, he snaps out of it, and, and basically we go back to war. Okay, and that wasn't the first, it wasn't, it, that was the first of, of quite a few targets that were taken out on that day. Three days later, I think, two days later, three days later, I'm not sure. Um, we've already rotated the back of the column, and I'm driving through southern Lebanon, and I see another Syrian T-62 that's been taken out. And, there, you know, it's really going slow, there's a lull in the battle, and I do one of the most stupid things that a 19-year-old can do. By the way, I'm allowed to do stupid stuff, I'm 19 years old, you know. That's, that's the age. And I jump off my vehicle and run over to this Syrian T-62 to see what it looks like. And, and I'm not going to go through all the details because anything that you can imagine, it's worse. Um, but I will say this. When something blows up, it doesn't always burn up. So there's a debris field around the Syrian T-62. And, and standing next to that tank, all of a sudden I realized what Yossi had realized all the way from the beginning. It's not a target, it's not a blimp on a scope, it's not a video game, it's not, it's actually for people. And I mean, you see their belongings, you see, you see the life. One of the things I still remember is they were eating the same crummy K rations that we were eating. I mean, the same manufacturer was selling the tuna fish cans to us and to the enemy. You know, I mean, we're, we're eating the same food. And I realized, that it was a person. I realized that there were five or four mothers that were crying, and I realized that there's four fathers that were, that were crying for their children. And, and something in me snapped. Um, I didn't start crying, but I started vomiting. Couldn't hold anything down for about three days. Um, there's a reason I stand up in front of people and share this. First of all, it's taken me many, many years to, to come to terms. For, for a long time, I thought I was the scum of the earth. I thought I was the most despicable, the most terrible person because I had taken so many lives. Um, but I need you to understand that even through this whole process, even back then, I never thought I did anything wrong. There was nothing morally wrong with what I did. I mean, I did what I was supposed to do. Um, you send your soldiers out to other places in the world to do things like that because they're supposed to do it. It wasn't wrong. What I felt was terrible is the fact that I had enjoyed it. That I had taken pride in taking the lives of other men. And that made me feel horrific. We have a saying in Hebrew that when you kill somebody, it makes a scratch on your soul. And... I am standing here or sitting here talking about this because I have learned how to deal with it. My wounds have healed and they have scarred. But I'm sharing this with you because I need you to understand. We're going to be talking about Israel. We're going to be talking about the politics. We're going to be talking about the great Israeli army. There's nothing heroic. There's nothing graceful. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing good that I can say about war. It's terrible. Israel has been winning its wars, but it's come at a price. Even winning a war takes a toll.
And, you know, people say the great Israeli army, they're out. The IDF, the Israel Defense Force, okay? No, we're there to defend our families. We're there to defend our country. We're there to defend our people. We're there to do things that I don't want to do. There's no pride in it. There's nothing great. And again, if we ever lose a war, we're going to be wiped out. I mean, everybody knows that. Okay, but even winning the war has come at a price. And, and since we are talking about this, and maybe this is what I want to, will want to return to at the end, what I want to say is this. I need you to understand that. I need you to know who we really are. And I need you to realize who we really are. And we need your support. We need your support to win the battles, I agree. But we need your support to bring something that is even more important than winning battles, and that's to bring the peace to the Middle East. Now, like I've said, I'm not a prophet. I don't know how that's going to happen. There are people, other people who understand that much, much better than I am. But if there's anything I want you to take from this experience this evening when you go home, is please do what the Bible told you to do and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need peace more than anything else. We need peace more than we need to win battles. There are battles to be fought. We're going to be talking about that. Okay? But I need you to put it in the right context before we go too much further. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. And that's what I want to do is put everything in context, help people understand you, the reality of, of Israel and, and war. Uh, and the great news is the Lord is returning and there will be genuine peace. And uh, that what you quoted was from Psalm 122, as you well know, uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's a prayer request from the Lord to his people. Isn't that interesting? God gives us prayer requests. Um, you ready to go? Yep. Okay. Let's do it. So let's, here's, here's something. This is in the news uh, today. Uh, this is from Times of Israel. Hey, by the way, Bob, you can lift up your chair a little bit. I feel bad. You, <laughs> you really? <laughs> yeah, I do. I think you have to get off it, and there's a handle over there somewhere in the front on the right that you there you go okay. on the right side there's there's a handle and uh there you go oh, all right welcome. so now you're welcome to the upper levels usually i'm the short guy i made and, it uh, <laughs> and, so this from times of israel israel hamas ceasefire to last a year deal includes sea lane to cyprus so we're hearing about this we we're watching uh all of this war stuff going on, which we're going to get into, Hamas, Hezbollah, underground tunnels, um, kites that are flying with firebombs, all kinds of things. But the sea lane, Cyprus, the peace, the peace deal, what, what's, what's going on with this? Okay, let me, let me back up. Um, map of Israel, can I pull you want up to go there? Yeah, Absolutely, just... you have the click, can you give them the clicker, yeah. Bob? Yeah, yeah let's see. There you go. I'm going to have to go a little bit further than this, so... Guys, hold on a second on this one. I saw it a minute ago. Where'd it go? Yeah, well, okay. no, let's click it this way. Okay. We'll go like that. Okay, here we go. Well, since I'm going to do this, let's go back and then start off. Uh, you okay. guys know where Israel is? Yes. Okay. There's California. There's How Israel. far back? We got that. On the other side of the world. Okay, uh, you know that we're situated in the corner of the Mediterranean Sea. That's what you see, what we call the Inland Sea. There's a lot of history connected to that. You know that we're teensy, wincy, tiny, little country. Itty bitty. We're smaller than New Jersey. I put this together just to visualize what we're talking about. 19 Israels can fit inside the state of California. 
Now this is interesting. Uh, on your slide you have, uh, it's just slightly larger than Los Angeles, Ventura, and Orange counties, Orange counties put together. Those are all small counties too, land mass wise. But God put us in a very special place. And when you look at it like this, okay, you've got Europe to the north of us, you've got Africa down below, and you've got Asia, and we're smack in the middle of all of that. Anybody who wants to move from anywhere in Europe to anywhere in Africa has to come through Israel. By the way, all the great conquerors, everything has happened like that. We're smack in the middle of this, but the neighborhood is kind of problematic. Yeah. <laughs> and when you see it like this, and even I see it like this, every little piece of green right there is a Muslim nation. Every little piece of green. That's a lot. That is what we're surrounded. God gave us an amazing country. He put us in a really crummy neighborhood. <laughs> and, and it's going down the drain as, as we talk. So what I'm trying to say is, it's all there, but it is connected to the problems. And I'm trying to reach a map a little bit further down. Can you bear with me? Okay. Okay, basic aspect of Israel. There we go. You see, Israel is actually a little tiny sliver of a country between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. That's what we are. Tiny, we're smaller than New Jersey. In the corner of the Mediterranean Sea is a little strip of land that has a very bad city in the middle of it called Gaza. That's why it's called the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip at the end of the war of 1948 was not conquered by the state of Israel. So the Gaza Strip at the end of the war of 1948 stays in the hands of the Egyptian army just like the West Bank stays in the hands of the Jordanians. By the way, it never was a Palestine. Never was a Palestine. To make the long story short, when Israel conquers the Gaza Strip in 1967, we take over the Gaza Strip. Um, and in 2005, Israel gave the Gaza Strip whole package back to the Palestinians. They say, here, take it, you run it, you decide what to do. The Palestinians actually were attacking Israel from the Gaza Strip. And we said, okay, we're giving it back to you. Let's have some peace and quiet. And I still remember in 2005 when Ariel Sharon said, let's give them back. Israelis said, if they fire one bullet at us, we'll wipe the Gaza Strip off the map. They fired 23,000 rockets over the border from the Gaza Strip into downtown Israel. We have not wiped them off the map. We can. We could if we wanted to, but we have not wiped them off the map. The thing is that the Hamas, which is a fundamentalist uh, Islamic organization, is in control of the Gaza Strip today, and they're using it as a base to attack Israel. Now, why do they need a base? Because their whole justification is the destruction of the state of Israel. That's what they say. That's what their charter says. By the way, very interesting thing about the Middle East. Our enemies speak the truth. They say they want to destroy us. They don't mince words. They don't count it. The Iranians, the Syrians, the Arabs on the whole say, we want to destroy Israel. The Hamas wants to destroy Israel. So they're using the Gaza Strip as a base to attack us. Israel could wipe out the Gaza Strip, but we don't want to do that. There's all kinds of humanitarian problems. There's all kinds of television networks that kind of tend to stress parts of the, the war, not the other parts of the war. So for the last, I'd say about 
12 years, there's been a, an off and on fight between us and the Gaza Strip. We're us saying, okay, we don't want to wipe Gaza off the map. They're saying, we are going to fire at you and see how much you're going to fire at us. The way the battle is being fought is a media battle. They hide between their, behind their civilian population. They fire rockets out of schools and out of hospitals. And they pray to Allah that we will fire back. Because when they fire against us and they kill Israelis, they dance in the streets. When we fire back and kill innocent bystanders because they are firing out of a school, they dance in the streets. That's the way the war is being fought. To make the long story short, bring us to where we are right now. After the last bout of firing, okay, they're saying, enough, we can't take it anymore. Okay? They said, okay, in the beginning we started attacking across the border, we put a fence there. Then they started firing rockets across the border. So we put a system called the Iron Dome. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Okay, the Iron Dome is there. Then they started digging tunnels underneath the border. So we found a, a, a technological way to figure out the tunnels, and we kind of blow up the tunnels every time we find them. Now they're stuck. So the only thing they can do is demonstrate. And they come up to the border, they demonstrate, they try to cross over the border fence. Can you think about tens of thousands of people walking across the border from Mexico into the United States? What would happen? Somebody would stop them. And when we stop them, we're blamed for all kinds of stuff. In the end, even that doesn't work, and they say, enough. And they're willing to reach a peace agreement, or, or not a peace agreement, a ceasefire, they call it. And the conditions for the ceasefire are those. That they will have an open access to the Cyprus port, meaning there's going to be a sea line between Cyprus and, and us. And they will have more or less an open market. They're choking in there. Now, here's the thing. They're choking because of their own, their own government. They have three days of electricity during the week. Now, here's the problem. We supply the electricity, but they're not paying for it. Exactly. Now, here's the problem. We're to blame. So who's paying for the electricity? The Palestinian Authority is supposed to be paying for the electricity. But because the Palestinian Authority doesn't like the Hamas government in Gaza, they've cut off the salaries and the electricity money. So the people in Gaza are going crazy. So what do they do? They attack us. That's the lopsided sense of what's going on in the Middle East. Israel has become the scapegoat. Anybody in the Arab world wants to be the man, they attack Israel. And, and that, to a certain extent, is what's going on. Hopefully, this ceasefire is going to last. Hopefully, we'll have some peace and quiet. And hopefully, they will not use this sea lane to bring in more equipment and more technology. So we're looking at this. Um, I want to go over to the issue that we have with Jordan. This is what Jordan says. We're going to get here in a minute. Jordanian culture ministers send the Jews back, meaning send them back to Europe, which I want to get to in just a minute. Uh, the whole Ashkenazi Jews, the Jews in Israel aren't the real Jews. I want you to speak on that in a minute. But first, I want to go up north. So Gaza is to the west, kind of southwest. Egypt would be down south. Mm -hmm. But up north, we have another problem up there. You have Hezbollah, we have Russia, we have Iran, we have Tur problems with Turkey. Uh, we know biblically, Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about that future coming war that will take place on the mountains of Israel, which I believe is the Golan. But Bob, you brought up something from one of your friends right. the other day. I have a very dear friend who's been working as a child advocate. Um, I've talked to you about her before. She actually takes children from Iran, smuggles them into Israel where Israeli doctors are doing heart surgery on these children. 
They go back to Jordan to recover, and then they're smuggled back home. Now, the mother and the child can never reveal that an Israeli doctor touched them or their own people will eliminate them. Uh, she's been doing this for years. Lately, she's been working the past year up at a refugee camp on the border of Syria, taking in all comers. They don't ask what nationality you are, what relationship you have with any country. They don't ask what your political position is. They just come to help people. Uh, just um, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, uh, the, and the Israeli army, by the way, gave them the tents that they use up there. They've been giving them food. They've been giving them medicine. They're supplying everything as aid for these people that are fighting in Syria. And the, uh, the situation has become pretty intense because I just got an email, and it said, we were ordered to move out immediately. What's going on? The Arab Spring. I don't know if you've heard the term. Well, it's been a while. It's been a while, six, seven years, something like that. Everybody thought, you know, the Arab, okay. And the Arab Spring started off with, with, a, with a, a request for democracy. Um, it wasn't about democracy. It was about Arabs saying, we don't want to live like this anymore. But the Arab world has not been able to achieve democracy, actually, in, in, in the form that you would probably recognize. Classic example is what happened in Egypt. Okay, I don't know if you remember, there was a military dictatorship in Egypt, uh, Husni Mubarak. Okay, he was overthrown by uh, Muslim uh, fundamentalists. Okay, and they had a democratic election, and what they had democratically elected was a Muslim fundamentalist organization called the Muslim Brotherhood. And the first thing the Muslim Brotherhood did, the minute they came to power in an the election, they started dismantling the whole mechanism that had brought them to power because there's nothing that connects Islam and democracy. Islam is the opposite of democracy. Islam as a, as a religion cannot deal with democracy. When the, when the Egyptian people realized what was going on, they overthrew the Muslim Brotherhood and they brought in another military dictatorship uh, actually led by a guy named Assisi. So what I'm trying to say is this whole Arab Spring that was supposed to be democracy didn't really work out. And what happens in Syria is it become a free-for-all. The people stood up and said, we don't want this government anymore. The government has had a running fight with them for the last six years, the Syrian civil war. By the way, 250,000 people have died in the Syrian civil war. Let me say that again. A quarter of a million people have been killed by Arabs inside Syria. Do you see demonstrations all over the world about that? Do you see people crying about the terrible atrocities that have been going on? We don't hear about it. When Israelis kill an Arab, the whole world goes berserk. When Arabs kill Arabs, it's normal. And here's the weird thing about this. In the civil war, the southern part of Syria becomes an enclave of some of the, the forces that are fighting against the Syrians. And they were using Israeli medical teams to treat their wounded. We did it quietly. The Israeli military put up two medical hospitals, two field hospitals on the border. There was treatment centers. People would come in. They would be treated in the, 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 the hospitals. They would be brought to hospitals in Israel, and then they would be sent across the border. Very quietly, very, very securely. Have you heard about that? Most people haven't heard. This is what we do. Even if it is not published, this is what we do. What happened two and a half weeks ago is that Assad, 
the Syrian regime has managed to recontrol, take control of the southern part of Syria next to the Israeli border, and now they don't even have access to their side, our side of the border. And, and the situation in there is dire. By the way, the situation in Syria is a free-for-all. I mean, it's like the wild, wild west. Because in the power struggle, in the power vacuum that Syria created, okay, different aspects have been moving in and trying to take control. One of those different aspects is the Iranians. And the Iranians have brought from Lebanon their organization called the Hezbollah, and they're fighting on the side of the regime. Okay? Um, so you have Iranian influence. The, the uh, Russians realize that all of a sudden there's a way for them to put a foothold into the Middle East, so they send in Russian forces. The Americans, with your former administration, started moving out of the whole balagan, of the whole situation in Syria, okay? So they're in this power vacuum, and the Israelis are saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, we have enough of a problem with Iran in Iran, we don't need Iran in Syria. So Israel has very quietly been attacking uh, Iranian installations in Syria, but here's the weird thing, and just, you know, just so you understand how complex the politics in the Middle East is, we've been doing this underneath Russian anti-aircraft systems because the Russians have been allowing us to hit the Iranians inside Syria because the Russians don't want the Iranians to grow too much. And, and this is just in, in two seconds how much of a miss-up and, and a mess-up the whole southern uh, Syria situation is. Balagan. Okay, and here's the, here's the thing. Let's go back. It's a balagan. Anybody know what a balagan is? A mix-up, a mess-up. It's, it's, it's a Hebrew word for everything that doesn't go according to plan. That is a, it's, what's happening in Syria is a major balagan. Um, in 1967, as part of the Six-Day War, the Israeli government sent the Israeli army up onto the Golan Heights across from the, the Sea of Galilee and said, create a buffer between us and Syria create a buffer between the Sea of Galilee and Syria. It's called the Golan Heights. You've probably heard about the Golan Heights. But the thing about the Golan Heights is that in the negotiations that people have been trying to push Israel into, make peace with your neighbors, make peace with your neighbors, some of the negotiations said give the Golan Heights back to the Syrians in return for peace. Thank God we haven't done that. Okay, because in what's happening in Syria with ISIS and with... with uh, with all the different organizations, Al-Qaeda's in there, the Kurds are in there, the Syrians are in there, Hezbollah. Can you imagine all of that sitting on top of the Sea of Galilee? So thank goodness we have this 20-mile gap that was never given back. But that was just two minutes about how complex the situation is in the Middle East. One of the things you need to know, one of the reasons we encourage you to go to Israel is uh, this is hard to understand without being there. You look at a map and you don't see the mountains, you don't see the hills, you don't see the, the vantage point that gunners and tanks and rockets have from the Golan Heights down into the Sea of Galilee. Before the 67 war, guys would sit up on the hills and take pot shots at farmers going out in their field. They would plant rows of cypress trees on the road so you couldn't see where the cars were going. Once you stand in the Golan Heights and look down there, you understand what's really going on uh, in a way you never could by just looking at the news and going, oh, it's just a line in the, on the map there. It's totally different when you see it for yourself. So uh, another encouragement just to say, ask the Lord when you can go so you can go and really see what's going on, not just hear what somebody says is going on. You need to see it. Yeah. Thank, 
David, you'll be leading. The, I didn't know it was going to turn into a commercial for Israel trip, but okay. it is. So you're leading that. Bob's going to be going also on that next trip that we have that's coming up. But with that, when you go up to Mount Bentel and you're up there at the top, you're looking over into Syria and you see that sign that, that has Damascus, X amount of kilometers, Jerusalem, and all the, and you realize how close everything is. There's also that coffee shop up there. That's Co- my f- coffee and on. Yeah, coffee and on. <laughs> <Coffee> and on. <laughs> he passed away the other day, by the way. Did yes. you know that? So, um, but, but you have that, and you really, it really gives you this perspective that helps you understand biblically, Bob, you know this, Ezekiel War is on the mountains of Israel. So when you look at that, there's the talk about giving back the Golan, uh, because the UN calls it occupied territory, Russia says it belongs to Syria and so forth. But the battle that takes place that's still coming in the future is on the mountains of Israel. But uh, with that, David, are there, I, I hear reports, I know there's tunnels in the region near Gaza. Um, I've heard from various people and read various sources. There's uh, tunnels from Hamas underneath homes in villages. Yes. And now in Hezbollah, coming from Lebanon, but also somewhat in Syria, are they also operating in Syria with well, Iran? Israel's been very careful to keep them out of the areas in Syria where we are. And again, very quietly, okay. all kinds of Hezbollah facilities have blown up mysteriously in all kinds of places in Lebanon that we don't it's really... It's an accident. I don't know. Now, how many missiles? I, I've, I've read everything from 50,000 missiles that Hezbollah has pointing, able to fire at Israel to upwards of 100,000. They're, they're talking. Um, I think our enemies realized after the 1973 war that you cannot take Israel on on the battlefield. Thank goodness. I mean, look at, I mean, 1973, they almost, they had us on, 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 the, on the floor and they still managed to lose the battle militarily. So they don't buy tanks and guns to fire against us. They buy long range missiles. And the way the wars are being fought today, by the way, just so you know, this is headed to you. Because any future war that the United States has with anybody, you're going to find missiles landing in the United States. That's the technology today. And the idea is to fire missiles into civilian populations in order to scare the population enough to make the government give up. Okay? That's the way the war is being fought. And Hezbollah knows that. Hezbollah knows that, you know, casualties, civilian casualties in Israel is something that Israel will not be able to, to, to stand. So they buy from Iran and from Russia huge amounts of long-range missiles to fire into downtown Israel. The, buy, the idea is to kill as many civilians as possible. It's a different kind of war, okay, that we're, we're fighting. So, yes, they're talking about between 50 and 100,000 uh, missiles. Um, I'm going to guesstimate that even that probably won't completely work. But that's a whole new... It's a threat. It's a threat. It's a threat. Then are there also tunnels uh, in those uh, neighborhoods that are up there in the northern area? You know, we've been to some of the nice kibbutz that are up there. Kirachmona and Metula. And Metula. Um, I'm going to say yes, but we don't know everything about them. But again, like everything else, it's it's the armor and, and the rifle kind of kind of question. They put together a new threat, we put together a new technology, um, and so far we've solved at least, well, I don't know if we're going to be able to solve 100,000 missiles. Probably not, okay? Um, By the way, most of the people who have missiles in their orchards or in their backyards don't know exactly what's going on. 
And here's another problem. Because they put the missiles in civilian population, I heard a very interesting, I read a very interesting article. Okay, do we have a moral problem with taking out those missiles? Okay, because let's say if I could pinpoint a, a one half ton piece of high explosive and, and rocket fuel, okay, but it's in somebody's backyard, and that is pointed at me as a weapon. If I take that out, I kill everybody living in that building. Do I or don't I? Do you understand part of the dilemma that Israel has to fight, has to reach in this kind of situation? But uh, to make the long story short, we think that there are, missiles, there are tunnels underneath. We're finding a technology to solve the tunnel problem. But like in Gaza, they tried the missiles. Now there's the Iron Dome. They can't get the missiles across, not in the numbers that they used to. Um, so they tried the tunnels. We're finding ways to solve the tunnel problem. Uh, and they've, they've changed tactics. Now they blow up balloons with helium, put a little incinerary device on the bottom of it, and have it float over the border into Israel. Or they tie little incinerary devices to kites and fly them over. And they're burning up fields on the, in the Israeli side. And they're saying it's only kites. Yeah. Okay? It's not a threat, which basically, but you're starting to understand the complexities of the situation. Yeah. Very complex. Plus, I, to help us understand it even more so when you talk about uh, you have a missile that's launched from somebody's backyard. Uh, I've, I've read where they're put in schools, kindergartens, Kindergarten. things like that. So hospitals. the moral dilemma, hospitals, the moral dilemma is, well, how do you, you know there's kids there. How do you, you know, what, what a huge problem that is. At the same time, I look at this being what an evil enemy that, that is also. Okay, do you take out a missile that's aimed yeah. at your children? knowing that their children are going to be killed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the kind of dilemmas that we have to deal with in the Middle East. And I've read that before you would even take a move like that, you call them up and tell them, uh -huh. we're going to do this. Yeah. You drop leaflets for the population to know. You give them uh, every advantage that an enemy shouldn't have by saying, here we come, here's what we're going to do, here's what time. Please move out of the way. We no, want to take out military targets, we knock, not civilians. We knock on the ceiling. We literally knock on the ceiling. The procedure when they want to bring down a building in downtown Gaza, okay, is they hack into the cell phone system in Gaza, and they tell all the people living in such and such address, get out of the building, we're going to blow it up. Then we drop leaflets, like you said. Then we drop a little explosive charge on the top of the building, okay, just to make sure everybody gets the idea. And then we drop the building to the ground. But, I mean, no other military has taken so many steps to ensure the safety of civilian population. Nobody's ever done that. And we are being accused of being... Well, here's the thing. And, and it's, again, it's as much a media war as it is anything else. And what I need you to understand, that in the media war, the, I'm going to say, the audience is you. The media war is directed at people like you and other people in the world who are playing a role in this. And the more people buy into the narrative from the other side, the more pressure will be put on Israel to make political concessions. I'm going to be very careful about what I'm going to say right now. But one of the best things that's happened to Israel in the last, I don't know how long, is the changing of the government in the United States of America.
I'm going to say this too. To a certain extent, a lot of people sitting here and people like you all over the United States are responsible for that change. We need you to continue to support the part of the political system in your country that supports Israel. Amen. Amen. Well, this is going to take us somewhere else. Oh, by the way, real quick with the media, the, the propagandists is what it is. You, have, you, you mentioned earlier 250,000 Arabs dead in this whole Syrian in war. In Syria. Don't hear anything about it. No. Uh, one Palestinian gets killed in response to 10 people being knifed, and it's all over the news. And you look at that. And, and we're turned into the monsters. Turned into the monsters, yeah. Well, that's, that's the media war. And again, maybe one of the things I need you to take away from this, I need you to start being selective about where you get your news from. Yeah. And that's something you have to start thinking about it. Start remembering who's kind of, what kind of news is coming out. And, um, well, I've been here for the last couple of hours, and I understand that this is a pretty good news source. So if you want to get, you know, kind of hooked in to some of the things that are going in, maybe this is one of those places. Amen. But just be careful. Guys, I, I remember the last Gaza war, I was out of the country. I was actually on a tour in Asia. And I had no choice but to watch the last, not the, this Gaza war, the last one, to watch the Gaza war from my hotel room in, in, in Asia. And... The only thing they had was CNN and BBC. And <laughs> listen, I've been in Gaza. I've been in Gaza to have falafel. I've been in Gaza to arrest people. And I've been in Gaza on a tank. I mean, I know Gaza. I know what's going on. I know what's going on in there. And here's the weird thing. I'm watching CNN. And all of the top reporters in the world are in this tiny little sliver. I mean, remember, Israel is smaller than New Jersey. Gaza is smaller than... Hammett? <laughs> okay? I mean, that's how close it is. Now, all the top reporters in the world, including people with Pulitzer Prizes, all the top military reporters in the world, okay? Something like 8,000 rockets were fired from Gaza into Israel, and not one reporter could show me a picture of a rocket being fired out of Gaza. Not one. Not one reporter could find a picture of, an Israel, of a Hamas fighter firing back at Israel. The only thing you saw on CNN is Israel firing back at the site. And I'm saying, wait a minute, how are these very, very popular, very, very professional, very, very knowledgeable reporters are inside. The rockets are literally going over their heads. They can't show me one piece of footage of a rocket going out. No, because that's not what they want to show. What they want to show is the poor Palestinians who are just crying about what's going on. That's what's important. They're not going to show you what's going on in Syria because that's not part of the agenda. And again, maybe this is a good place to say it, they have an agenda, and the agenda is to bash Israel, not only because of us, but also because of all of you. Because when you bash Israel, you bash God. And that's part of the war that's being fought here. I need you to understand that. I need you to be selective about where you get your news from, what news you consume, and know what's actually going on there. Don't believe everything they say. What do you call it? False news? Fake news. Fake news. There you go. <laughs> Fake news everywhere. So, of this, uh, the things that are happening. This comes, Jordanian culture minister. Send the Jews back. Uh, 
what is that about? Sending them back to Europe. Europe. So get get them out. And, and what's this? What's what's this based on? What's the theory behind it? I, it's it's a little bit complex. I'm going to back up a little bit. Okay. Um, this land, well, that land, okay, it's hard, was promised to the chosen people. I mean, there's a connection between the people and the land. That connection was made by God and hasn't ever been broken. Now, we've gone away. We went to Babylon for a while, had to come back. Okay, we've gone away. They've destroyed our temple, but we're back. Okay, but here's the thing. Our enemy realizes that they can't fight us on the battleground. Okay, so what they're trying to do now is break that connection. And to break that connection, you have to come and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Jews don't belong here. It's not their land. They're not supposed to be here. Who said that the promise that was made by God 3,500 years ago to a guy named Abraham is still in place? And if that promise is broken, here's the weird thing. We don't belong there. Let me say that again. If the promise between the Jewish people and the promised land is broken, then we, the Jews, don't belong in there. We don't, and, and there were people living there. There were people, after we were kicked out, other people moved in. So if it belongs to them, then we are just colonizers. We're just people who have come to take a land of somebody else. When you hear that, the question is, by the way, I'm sorry to say, there's a lot of Christians who believe what I just now said. There's a lot of Christians that have broken that connection between the land and the people and believe. And those Christians are the ones who are supporting the Palestinian side. Because if there's no connection, if I did not come back to my homeland, but I actually have come to take the land of somebody else, I'm a colonizer. And the Arabs are saying, wait a minute, if this is European colonists that have come to take our real estate, send them back to where they came. So what you're hearing, what he is saying basically, is that connection doesn't exist. That promise has, not, has been broken. You don't need to that. And these European colonizers, Jews are mostly from Europe. The Ashkenazi Jews are mostly from Europe. Those European colonizers should go back to where they came from, and that would solve all of the problems. The thing is that I think you would agree, or most of us would agree, that that is my land. I didn't come to take it from anybody. I didn't steal it from anybody. I came back to my homeland. And I'm going to use a term that a lot of people don't use in this country. Maybe you should start. If there ever was such a thing called an ancestral homeland, I don't know if you've ever heard that term. An ancestral homeland is where a people becomes a people. Okay? The land of Israel is the ancestral homeland of the Jewish people. Much more than the ancestral homelands of Native Americans in America. We've been there longer. Okay, more than ancestral homelands of Aborigines in, in Australia. People don't use that term. That is my ancestral homeland. I didn't kick anybody out. I came back to where I'm supposed to be. Now, Israel has said many times, we're willing to reach an arrangement. Let's find a way to live together. But the Arabs are saying what? I get him out. No. Abba Evan, who was the first representative of Israel in the United Nations, says, the Arabs have never missed a chance to miss a chance. <laughs> So, so with th this term, I, I can pretty much guarantee you, as this goes on video, it's on video now, people are watching live, it'll repeat and people will watch it for weeks to come. There's all these people that blog on it while it's going about the evil Ashkenazi Jews 
and it's coming from a perspective in the church known as replacement theology, which you guys have heard of. That's saying the church has replaced Israel. God's promises to Abraham are not valid, um, but I know what the book of Genesis says and Deuteronomy. Uh, God has made a covenant with Abraham and to his ancestors forever. It's, a, it's an eternal covenant. And it's for the land. And then you go into the Davidic covenant for the Messiah. So you start looking at it and following it all the way through. The Ashkenazi Jew is the one that is labeled by replacement theologians and things like this as saying, you're, you're the fake Jews. You're not really Jews. You're this made-up breed of Jews from Europe. Is that what they're saying? Well, here, here again, this is a whole movement to, to pull the rug out of this connection. If I pull the rug out of that connection, then there's nothing. And in order to do that, I can do two things. First of all, say the Jews don't deserve the land. It doesn't belong to them. Then to say, wait a minute, but even if they're here, they're not real Jews. And again, by the way, you've yeah. seen processes like this going in different realms in the world today. Okay, let's, let's kind of spin everything around, spin the basis aspects of what we're talking about, spin it around so people don't actually understand. So if they're not really Jews then it doesn't even matter because the whole thing is broken. So, and, and again, I'm going to say this with, I don't know how many professors and how many academics I have here, but there's academics that kind of will follow almost any kind of theory. There's always somebody that's going to say this and always somebody going to say that. So somebody comes up with a whole theory that the Ashkenazi Jews were not even Jews. There was some from, uh -huh. from the Caucasus mountain somewhere and they kind of terminate and, and that's the whole idea. Now, I have a problem believing that. Am I allowed to say something because I'm Jewish? I mean, you know, you, I mean. Are you really Jewish? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. I want to hear it. You got everybody waiting. Yeah, well, let's put it this way. We're kind of a, a special little people. I mean, think about the fact that, you know, uh, just one little piece of information. I don't know if you know, but 34% of all the Nobel Prizes are people who come from a Jewish background. I mean, we cannot be who we are if we were not chosen. Does that make sense? So you can argue about whatever you want, but the, the history of the Ashkenazi Jews proves more than anything, okay, that we've also survived the persecution. We have prospered in, in, in terrible odds. We've gone through the most, the Ashkenazi Jews that you're talking about goes, goes through the most horrific holocaust in the world. And we came out standing up straight, standing up tall, and built a country out of the ashes of what was left of that. I mean, if that's not proof, I don't know what it is. And the other thing about that, the land of Israel, nobody even wanted the land until right. the Jews were in the land. Yeah. Now they want it. They didn't want it before. Until you built it, now they want it. Yeah, now, now, you, now it's all well. built. <laughs> well, I, I, I still remember, you know, you read the stories. Uh, a guy named Samuel Clemens actually rode through the land in, I think it was 1860-something. Yeah. Okay. a while ago. A while ago. Yeah. And he rode through the land. He was actually going through the Jezreel Valley, and he said, land of milk and honey? Who in his right mind would call this the land of milk and honey? It's desolate. It's bandits. It's malaria. It's dusty. By the way, Samuel Clemens, his other name was? Mark, Mark Twain. Twain. Okay, and he was a tourist in the land, just like you're going to be a tourist in the land. He just did it on horseback. You're going to do it in an air-conditioned bus. Okay, <laughs> better food too. 
Okay, but what I'm trying to say is it was nothing. For thousands of years, the land was desolate. It only bloomed when we came back. When we came back and started building and started planting and started watering. And if you look at a satellite picture of Israel, I think even here, if you look closely along the southern border of Israel, you can actually see the border between us and Egypt. If you look closely at the border of Israel, there's, you can actually see a little bit of a line. I mean, even from space, you can see one side is more prosperous and the other side is more deserted. I mean, that's who we are. That's what we know how to do. Um, Israel is the only, plant, only, only country that has negative deforestation year after year. Meaning, year after year, there's more trees in Israel than the year before. We plant trees with a vengeance. And, and again, it, it's because we're back. It is our land. Yes, but now our neighbors see that and say, ha that would be a nice piece of real estate to have. <laughs> and that's part of the reason that we're fighting all of these wars. So that was a long answer to a short yeah. question. And Bob, doesn't the Bible also talk about in the days, in the latter days, how Israel will be full of fruit and the desert yeah. will blossom? Will bloom. And, yeah. and it literally has. And David Ben-Gurion, your first uh, prime minister, had a vision of this and encouraged young people to go out there and build and actually went out there and lived himself to do that. It was a little bit wacko. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would just like to go back for a minute to the promise was made to Abraham. Yep. And I've had a lot of uh, other people say, well, his son was um, Isaac, but there's another son there, Ishmael, and the promise went to him. Scripture records it went to Isaac. It went from Isaac to Jacob. And uh, when Abraham was there, he bought land. He paid for land. It's called Hebron today, the, the field of Machpelah. Also, David bought land. We call it the Temple Mount today. No real estate transaction, no bill of sale. It's never been sold to anybody else or traded to anybody else for anything. The Word of God says that they paid for this land. Besides the fact that God gave it to them, they came and paid for it anyway. And not just with cash, with blood. I think the last time I saw the number, it was something like 12,500 Israelis lost their lives over the years in the wars for Israel. Um, we have a saying in Israel that the land was handed to his people on a platter. The platter is those who paid the ultimate price. And there are a lot of Israelis. It didn't come for free. It didn't come Israel. It didn't come easy. 1948, the War of Independence, the population, the Jewish population fighting against the Arabs was 600,000 people. There were 600,000 Jews fighting against probably about a million and a half uh, you know, Arabs in the land and probably millions around. The casualties in the 1948 War of Independence were 6,000. Let me say that again. Out of a population of 600,000, 600 killed in action, that concluded wounded, okay, is 1% of the population. How many people in the United States? 300 million today? Something like that. Just imagine a war where you lose three million soldiers. It would devastate the country. Look at what happened after 9-11, okay? It would devastate the country. We didn't get devastated. We actually turned around and built a nation out of that. I mean, it didn't come for free and it didn't come cheap. And we have a feeling that we're not done paying for it even today. I think the last Israeli soldier was killed in Gaza with the last Balagan uh, two weeks ago, something like that. Sniper, a Palestinian sniper actually shot him in the chest. 
and went through the flak jacket and, and we lost them. So it doesn't, it, it, it's still something that we're going to have to fight for. By the way, we know we're going to have to fight for it. We're surprised when other people don't realize that. But that's just another part of yeah. the story. It was the price of blood all the way back to the days of David and Aruna. Yes. Uh, when <laughs> you, you look at it back then. Um, so we know that there's a, a financial price that was played, paid, the blood price that was paid with the angel of the Lord yes. on uh, uh, Mount Moriah. Um, you know what else is interesting? In the Bible, you, uh, a title deed requires the seller and the buyer. And you have them. You have from, with, in David's case, from Aruna to David. And you look at that, that whole area. Uh, we're out of time. Oh, would you guys can do two more questions? Yes. Okay, yes. good. I was hoping you'd say yes. Um, so here it is. Dave, what would happen if you said no? They'd go eat hamburgers. <laughs> so here's, here's a, a, why do, there, there's a huge difference between American Jews and Israeli Jews. Now I've told everybody in here this before, unless you've been to Israel, you don't really see it. In Amer American Jews are, there's a different mindset. What, what's up with that? Do you have any idea? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I'm talking about my family now. You know, I mean, uh, that, that could be a balagan, literally. Um, one of the things that you need to do is we come with a history. And uh, any of you who come on a tour of Israel, you know, we're going to go to Yad Vashem. Yad Vashem is Israel's Holocaust Museum. And I'm going to stand there and I'm going to explain that we carry that on our shoulders. Um, my family emigrated to the United States. My original family emigrated to the United States uh, in 1904. By the way, I'm the classical Polish-Jewish story emigrated to the United States, Ellis Island. You know, the whole DDT thing and, and all of that. By the way, I was in New York last year, and I, I actually found the manifest of the ship that brought my family from England, originally from Poland, over to the United States. But they ran away from persecution. The reason they left Poland is because groups of marauding Kozak warriors were riding into Jewish villages, raping and looting and, and deserting everything. They couldn't stand anymore. They picked up and left. By the way, since I am speaking about this, and let me make it personal, I want to say thank you. Thank you to the United States of America, who was willing to accept the Jews from all over the world and give them a safe haven like no other country ever did in the history. It, it, it saved my family. Okay, my family actually came here. I think America prospered from this also. I mean, look at Hollywood is all, you know, Jewish. By the way, all Jewish Poles from the same area my grandfather came from. I mean, you know, it was all one big balagan. But what I'm trying to say is this. We grew up knowing, celebrating, thinking about persecution. I mean, even traditional. I mean, do you know what a Jewish holiday is? You know what the idea behind a Jewish holiday is? Passover, Purim. The idea is this. They tried to kill us. They didn't kill us. Let's eat. <laughs> <laughs> Passover, it was the Egyptians. Purim, the book of Esther, it was the Persians. By the way, we already have one Persian holiday. We don't need another one. That connects to, to the time. What I'm trying to say is this. We celebrate people who try to kill us on a regular basis. You understand we grew up with a chip on our shoulder. And history has proven again and again. It's just a matter of time. 
Okay, why am I going with this? Because with you, when you grow up with that kind of mindset, if you have to decide which side of the political fence you're going to support, the conservative side or the liberal side, from a position of fear and minority, which side are you going to support? That's why most of the Jews down through history have supported the liberal, less conservative side of the political fence, no matter where they were. Okay? That makes sense. If you are fearful. The thing is that in Israel, we're not a minority. In Israel, we don't fear the same way we fear. We fear outside, but we don't fear inside. Which means most of the Israelis are on today, especially, look at the government that's in Israel. You know, Benjamin Netanyahu is actually a right-wing government. Most Israelis are on the right side of the political fence. When you take the fear factor out of it, it changes the way we actually relate which is why the Jews here tend to be more on that side, the Jews there tend to be more on that side. Now that's just one of many, many different uh, solutions or uh, reasons, but that does make sense. Listen, I grew up in Israel, but I was born in the States. Very interesting, since I can make this personal like everything else. It was really weird because my dad worked for TWA. Anybody remember? Very kind of nice. So we had fl free flying flights, and I went back and forth from the States. And um, my grandparents lived in a little Jewish neighborhood in Baltimore, Maryland, Telmar Road off of Reisterstown Road somewhere in Baltimore. And I got back to the States on a regular basis. Once or twice a year, I'm going back to the States. And I knew the neighborhood. I still remember the kids. Now, it's all, we're all Jews, but I'm living in Israel. They're living in Baltimore, Maryland. And as time grows up, year after year, I come back to the States, you know, you see the same kids, yeah, you know, yeah, what are you doing? And, and I still remember, I was about nine, ten years old, I started realizing that there's a growing difference between me and them. They're dealing with different things, they're seeing the world in a different way, okay? I hit 15, 16, okay, I'm already talking about where you're going into the army, they're already talking about girls and where they're going to go to college and what they're going to drink, and, and you know, and, and I still remember very weirdly seeing this growing divide between who I am. Now, listen, my, my father grew up there, I mean, they we're from the same place, but that's what I'm saying. There's a difference between growing up in Israel and growing up in a Jewish community in the United States. And that's just one more way to illustrate it. Totally different. And um, a couple of other quick things, and we're going to wrap up. Uh, Bob, you mentioned earlier how much tourism is up in 40, Israel. 40%. 40% this year. Hallelujah. 40%. Tourism is up 40%. It's harder to get hotels booked over there. But, it, you know... We're talking about wars and all the people that are against them and everything else, and everybody goes, why would I want to go to the middle of a war zone? Is it safe there? You're safer than in downtown L.A. Amen. <laughs> I mean, you know, no matter how you cut it, no safer matter how you breathe. San Bernardino. San Bernardino. <laughs> You're safer than Chicago, by the way. The story goes that the mayor of Jerusalem had a conversation with the mayor of Chicago, and they talked about, you know, how many people got killed in Chicago this year and how many people got killed in Jerusalem this year? And the mayor of Jerusalem said, you're crazy. The mayor of Chicago would replace the Jerusalem numbers like this. What I'm trying to say, you're safer in Israel than anywhere else in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. You're going to see people walking around with guns. 
we were okay with. I, we don't understand your gun balagan over here. Okay. <laughs> we, I, don't, I, we don't get it either. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go. I mean, but you're going to walk around Israel. You're going to walk around uh, the city of Jerusalem, and you're going to see that Girls With Guns is not a heavy metal rock band in Israel. <laughs> okay. We take the security very seriously, and, and we are, you are going to be more secure over there than anywhere else. And that's the reason that you're probably, we're, we're having problems finding hotel rooms for everybody today. Now, I'm a tour guide. I'm not complaining. Okay, but basically more and more people are coming, more and more people are realizing, and maybe that's connected maybe to something else. More and more people are realizing that the problem in the Middle East is not Israel. If you'd have asked people 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they say, oh, I mean, even look at the, the, the liberal left would say the whole problem in the, in the Middle East is the Israel, the Palestinian problems, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And people are starting to realize that the problem is not the Palestinians. Okay, that Israel is the safest place. And <coughs> I think we mentioned this before. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. There's problems with democracy. There are things that work well. There are things that work, don't work so well. I mean, every once in a while you get a leader that's a little bit wacko. I don't know why that, okay, no, I'm not going to go there. But what I'm trying to say is we have problems with democracy, but there's no better system. We are, for better or for worse, a democracy in the, middle of the, in the Middle East. This is something that America connects to very, very closely. And we're seeing more and more people that are realizing that it's safer than Israel and anywhere else, together with the, the, the rates of the flights going down, and more and more people are coming to Israel. Now, if you're going to come, do it quickly, because the more people come, the more of a balagan it's going to be. So, I mean, make, make the trip as quick as possible. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Do you have any final thoughts, Bob? Come to Israel with us. This, now, this wasn't intended to be a, a, I know. a commercial for a group. But I will. But it is. I, it is. I want people to go and see. In my own life, I was raised in a Christian home. We had Bible stories and we had fairy tales. And I knew that Bible stories were different, but it wasn't until I was actually in Israel that I realized that David and Goliath was not the same as Johnny Appleseed and the, or the, the guy with the big tree, you know? Uh, who was the Jolly it? Green Giant or the, something. Oh, John who was Bunyan. that? No, oh, uh, not, not Paul Bunyan, <laughs> not the Paul Jolly Bunyan Green Giant. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. The, the, yeah, the giant and the, and the little kid. But, and and I, I realized, too, that Hansel and Gretel were not the same as the three Hebrew children being thrown in the oven kind of thing, too. There is a reality that comes to your faith like no other place. You can vacation anywhere in the world and, and have fun. You can go to, to Athens or Rome or all these other places. Historically great, fantastic things to see and hear about. But there is no place like going to, for us as believers, it's his home, his ancestral homeland. But for us as believers, it's our spiritual homeland. And there is no place you can go like this anywhere in the world. So, go. Now, I've, I've been a number of times, and that's why I keep encouraging people to go. I love seeing your face when you get there and go, oh, this is real. And, and I am safe. And the food is good. And uh, the buses are comfortable, and there's roads, you know. I, I first thought I was going to see people leading donkeys and wearing robes and everything, and uh, they I do would that. Write, they I do that the for bus. the tourists. Right, right. <laughs> there are the, you can go to Nazareth Village and here. see them that way, but uh, it's a very modern society. And I think one of the first times I went, it's like, look, they're building buildings. Who does that in a war zone? 
Who pushes babies around in carriages in the evening, walking with your family in the middle of a war zone? It's not what the news is portraying it to be. It's a different kind of place, and as a believer, you realize God's hand is upon this nation, God's hand is upon this people, and you will be blessed. Amen. Amen. Do you have any final words, young man? Thank you. Thank you. David, it's all wonderful having you. I wish you could come out here more often. I know it's a long trip for you to, to fly here, but thank you so much. You're going to be at our Prophecy Conference next June out in the desert. That's so what you we're working on. So you information online for that. Pardon me? That's what we're working on. That's what we are working on. We're going to fly you out in the whole bit. Uh, you can get information on that, but you're with us. Both of you are with me on the Israel tour that we have coming up. Uh, exciting, exciting things. But with that, we do have to conclude. You look like you yeah, say something. I, I want to say one more thing, and uh, nobody's paying me to say this, okay? I, over the years, I've gone to Israel many times, and I've met many guides, and I've got to tell you, this is one of the very best. Amen. So, now I'm blessed. Uh, He's a really good guide. Highly recommend him. And you like him too. So come on I over. I like him, yeah. Let me show you my country. Amen. Let me connect the different pieces. Somebody once said, it's like putting 3D glasses on the Bible. Amen. You've read it all your life in two dimension. We're going to make it 3D. And the fish is pretty good too. So, well. <laughs> Lots of food.